welcome to episode 46 of Expanding Beyond. Uh, sorry for the erratic schedule at the moment. It's just <laughs> summer in Europe and Monica is in Italy and I'm it not necessarily on holiday yet. That's coming up, but it's nice outside and yes. we do other stuff, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm spending a lot of time on the beach, so <laughs> priorities. Ah, priorities, yeah. <laughs> but we are here, no matter yes. what. We so. try to not completely stop, at least. Yes. Unlike my other podcast, where the last episode was in April, and we're recording okay. this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, two episodes a year or something. I mean, if it's we're a better. very yeah. dense, interesting episode, might work. <laughs> <laughs> the point is the content, right? So Yeah. That's the other thing I have to say, because... So, just a bit of a digression. I don't recall if we have ever spoke about this, but I got a couple of questions from friends about, like, how do we actually do this? And I pointed out that we are actually not rehearsing anything. We're not planning much. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's Otherwise, really... we wouldn't do it, right? Yes, that's the <laughs> whole point. Um. So it also comes and goes. So sometimes we actually feel like, okay, there's really nothing that happened. And then just filling half an hour of your time and our time, I don't think it makes a lot of sense if there's nothing really worth talking about. So sometimes we also just skip an episode because because of that. So we're, we're very... Uh, Agile. We are very yes. agile. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I like that term. That, that was the whole point of this whole philosophy, right? Yeah. People over. And for those people that think we don't record often enough, they just have to send us questions and we yes. can talk about stuff. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, that's it. Uh, the small announcement. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we just figured out 10 minutes ago what we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What happened to you to this couple of weeks? Yeah, sort of on my side, um, I had some actual time to spend on my side project. So it's a very niche um, and geeky subject about, I don't know, tracking your fountain pens and inks and stuff like that. Um, these days with the internet, obviously, if you find a niche and then there are still enough people on the world, uh, for something to gain traction. So I've been running this basically on Heroku with a, I don't know, cheapest paid database plan, which is a database without any uh, RAM. Okay. <laughs> which is kind of, which worked for a while, uh, actually surprisingly long. But then the, these days I noticed if there's more traffic, then it gets really slow. So I actually had to spend some time figuring out what to do. The Heroku way would be basically to throw money at the problem, basically upgrade the database on their side. But then for a side project, I didn't really want to spend $50 uh, a month on a database. So I looked somewhere else. My um, end could have gone with AWS. Not a big fan of Amazon. So I went with DigitalOcean. Mm -hmm. And I know I have a at least only $30 uh, database and it has i don't know more at least some ram and it's kind of kind of fast so that it was a fun thing and then i had to actually look at what stuff i'm doing and why this is so slow 
and actually, I don't know, fix stuff and be a bit smarter. So it's like, I don't know, in, in a sense, it feels to me I'm basically doing whatever a company would do when they grow, but it's just at a very micro scale. I was about to say, yeah, that's exactly what it, what it feels. Okay, I'm scaling. What should I do now? Yeah. I'm scaling. I have three and a half thousand users, right? <laughs> that's sort of I my mean, level. It's not that few users, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think my, my biggest table has like 250,000 rows. So it's not at a huge scale, but if you don't want to spend the money, then I guess you have to start being optimizing sooner than, uh, than a company that can actually invest a bit of more money in this. But yeah, it's essentially the same thing, just at a smaller scale. And I've been playing around with Docker and I haven't really switched off of Heroku yet. Mm-hmm. But I think eventually I will have to, because at some point I spend over a hundred dollars a month on hosting okay. for Heroku. <laughs> and it was a bit much. So I started to optimize a few things to get it down to a manageable level. But eventually I think I have to sort of re-implement stuff my own on my own and sort of yeah. learn stuff that on that level as well, which I guess isn't bad either because that's sort of one of my no. my gaps in knowledge. Yeah, It's not a bad thing per se, no, definitely. I was thinking... What in the end made you decide for for uh, Docker over other options, even over self-hosting? Mainly because that's uh, the plan uh, at work, right? Mm-hmm. We are sort of in the middle of swi- uh, switching off of Heroku for the time being, not going somewhere else, but hosting Docker images on Heroku, but with the long-term plan of hosting them somewhere else. So it seemed like a good opportunity to sort of uh, just try it get, out, huh? Try it out on my side and see, hey, if I do it myself and if if I look at what's done at work, maybe I can actually finally understand <laughs> how this all works instead of just using it and have someone else implement it. Yeah, because in the end, it's it's not that hard to figure out. Hey. Docker just means some. you need to figure out how to spin up some Linux machine in some container and do some setup, right? Yes, that's... Uh, Once you understand that, it's not that scary anymore, I guess. And I mean, there's plenty of documentation out there to uh, to help you out. It's not that mystic, mysterious thing that it was in the past. Especially yeah. for for a website like like yours that doesn't require constant attention. I mean, what what becomes tricky from what I could see because I didn't do that directly myself. But what I what I saw was challenging was understanding how to um, really make something uh, redundant and uh, making sure that it reacts the right way. Uh, mm-hmm. to the stimuli uh, that the system gets um, at which time. And and again, it's also it was also, again, a matter of costs driving certain decisions. For example, one of the constraints was we don't want to have an on-call, basically. Uh, yeah. So we need to minimize the number of people that have to be on-call we have to minimize the costs again uh, when it comes to running. So how do we auto scale up and down? 
uh, how do we make sure the system reacts the the right way? So um, that yeah. is the the challenging part, like figuring out how your system behaves and and how do you want the technology to serve that that purpose? Yeah, I, I guess I don't have these hard limits there, and if you don't the side be wouldn't call? really w- no. No, I mean, in the sense for my side project, it's like, hey, if it doesn't work perfect, it's not like anyone is paying me much for that stuff or at all, right? So the pressure <laughs> isn't on, essentially. Yes. Also, uh, I don't want to spend more money on it. <laughs> no. <laughs> that is something that I believe as engineers, we get to learn very, very late in the in the game. The, the moment you touch something budget-related is very late in your, uh, in your career. It always comes when you are at a director kind of level, never before. Uh, mm-hmm. So very often as an engineer, you yes, I mean, as a side effect, if you work, especially in that specific uh, area, that of, uh, you know, like DevOps and uh, system operation and, and the like, then maybe you are more familiar with it because you see Amazon ring-a-ding. But um, if you are a product engineer, how much? Do you, how many of you? That's a good question for our listeners. How many of you know how much your company is spending on uh, on uh, keeping your the system running? So I'm not talking about the engineer salary, like the pure air quotes uh, metal. How much that is uh, is costing? That mm. would be because I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> neither neither do I. Sort of on for Heroku, it's sort of a mix of hey, some things we can see at mo- as monthly costs. The other are some some kind of credits where I don't know what credit means in terms of money. Yeah. But yeah, it is sort of a bit out. In the end, someone needs to decide. Do I rather pay some some one to do the work, or do I pay mm-hmm. some service? And the trade-off is kind of above the normal engineer's pay grade, I would yeah, say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sort of, that is my my side quest, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I sort of have figured out the worst background jobs, essentially, that have been making my database slow. So I can, guess, move on and do this, some other fun stuff on the project eventually. Yes. And that's it from my side. There's some fun planning stuff going on at work, but I guess we covered that last time already. Yes. So you do have a, you are, you are out of work now. You don't have anything to do anymore, I hear. Yes, yes. Uh, that That is absolutely not true. But <laughs> what I'm out of is, so uh, a month and a half ago or so, it's been that long already. Anyways, we hired finally a PM for my team. So mm-hmm. guess what? I'm not the PM anymore. Working with Chris has been extremely interesting. He's full of energy uh, and he is actually probably one of the best PMs I've ever worked with. And his background is um, also that of a software engineer. He started with, I think, two or three years as a, as a software engineer and then slowly moved into, into product. Mm-hmm. He is technically savvy. So very often what happens, not only he is 
as I said, full of energy. Therefore, he's taking care of defining many, many things that we didn't have before and that were, of course, causing friction. Like, for example, how do you align all those stakeholders? I've done that to some extent also in the past, in my previous team, in my previous company, but always without the tools, the professional tools of a product manager. It's it's mm-hmm. very different being a product manager and aligning your stakeholder and being someone in engineering, be it a senior uh, engineer or, uh, or an engineering uh, manager or someone in the engineering leadership that does that because you need different tools. Uh, and what the stakeholders are used to are actually the tools of the PM because they are that, you know, like that cent- central axis around which the the whole production, guess what, of the, uh, of the company uh, moves around. So he's taking care of many, many things that I was taking care poorly for different reasons uh, before. And because... Historically, apparently, he's used to have not a very strong engineering manager in in his team. He also takes care of a lot of the interaction and the organization of the team itself. Mm -hmm. It was his idea. I was like, okay, let's move to Scrum or let's do this, let's do that. And he's structuring many of those things without my intervention. Things that usually I would consider in my ballpark, but he's doing them. So I'm like, okay, I'm... I found myself not being very territorial on this. So I'm actually like, okay, if he wants to do it and the idea is good, why not? Yeah, sure, do it. So I'm out of work in the sense that I have to reset that mental image that I had of myself for the past year and something and uh, rethink where I can be useful for uh, for the team and for the company. Mm-hmm. When we when we talked about this before the starting recording, uh, you you said something like, oh, "What did you say exactly?" Uh, you are uh, you are there to manage people, and that is actually true. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> so I will have more time to do that. Uh, like I don't have to run from one meeting to another anymore. Uh, so I can actually do that with more intention behind it with more uh, mindfulness but there's also a whole different aspect to um, managing engineers that is not just the management of the of the single uh, of the single person and that part that's what I want to relearn in a way because mm-hmm. as I said also in the past I I always had pms that were very uh, well very uh, but they were more hypothetical than actually managing the team. So I had to do a lot of that. And now that creates a lot of space for me to actually think about what what do I want to do and how do I want to do those things? So if I want to contribute to to the strategy, how can I do that? Or what else are the things that I can say at the end of the day? Okay, I've done this. This is that, you know, like brief, intense shot of uh, serotonin that says, ah, I've accomplished something today. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, I actually made a PR on our uh, code base mm-hmm. and don't imagine anything fancy because uh, JavaScript. <laughs> what I actually did was changing a couple of static 
HTML pages, but you know, it's two PRs. I had to go and read uh, how they manage um, their uh, pipeline uh, on uh, on in our web team. I had to understand what is the right branch where I want to do this or that. So it was um, it was a good experience. Um, on the other hand, I'm still thinking that I don't want to focus too much on what the team does because I think the team does wonderful. So I want to understand better what the engineers go through so that I then I can figure out what needs to be tweaked. You don't change something in a car that works smoothly, right? But maybe mm-hmm. yeah. there is this teeny tiny filter here that you might change or clean and it's going to make a little bit of a difference. What I find interesting is that we now have a new CTO. I think I, I maybe I already talked about this. Mm-hmm. And he has actually quite some experience from small companies to big companies. And uh, he has seen a little bit of uh, going from zero to 200, 200 to 1,000 and so on. And it's also interesting to me to see where he is focusing is uh, his attention. I want to leverage what he wants to do so that then I can use that as a trampoline, uh, trampoline. Yes. I think that's the English to, um, gain momentum and make my team do even better. So one of the things that I want to look at, and I've seen a couple of colleagues that have been uh, doing wonders there is how to actually use metrics for, uh, for our team, for our teams in general. So what does it mean to find the right metrics? How do you show something that your team has achieved based on those metrics? And uh, how do you actually make the team feel that those metrics are not the enemy? Not that my team does, because I haven't proposed anything. So they actually haven't said anything. But um, so these are some of the thoughts that uh, that I have uh, that are going through my head at the moment. Yeah, sort of you're not try you're trying to find something to do with your time when someone else is actually doing their job in a sense. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, I want to find things that are I mean, I can definitely feel my time. Believe me, it's not like there's nothing to do. But what I want to find is something that is work that is worth its money. There was this, I think I I said something about this in the past, but there is this one guy that I follow on Twitter and in other uh, other places where he speaks about, I mean, his focus is more on productivity, but that's a different story. One of the mental models that I'm following from him is is this instead, is that of the $10, $100, $1,000 hour. So what, when... His point is like, when you have too much on your plate, what you want to focus on is the $1,000 hour, because that's the kind of work you want to spend your time on, because that's going to give you the biggest leverage, right? If you spend time on those small tasks that actually don't move the needle, yes, you're filling your time, but you're not going very far. And 
you know, like this is that kind of work that is like, oh, let me just answer this message. Let me let me look at this uh, at this email. So what I need to do basically, what I'm trying to do is getting out of this mindset that I had to have in the past months of emergency, so reaction, and actually get into a proactive uh, mindset that allows me to find that kind of uh, high leverage uh, work that I can do. Mm -hmm. And if that requires a little bit of time, not doing anything and just, you know, like putting my thoughts in order, that's, that's fine. I think it's time well invested. Yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing, nothing much (laughs) from my side to (laughs) say there. On the other hand, it might actually be boring, right? If if, if stuff doesn't change and you don't have to figure out new things. It, It might. That that was also something else that I was thinking about. Like, if my team doesn't need me anymore, like, do I actually need to be there at all? Like, if they are autonomous and they don't need exactly my presence all the time, um, what is that I'm uh, that I'm bringing, and what where else can I get interested in doing things? Because let's yeah. be frank, I think I I said this to a couple of people. It's not like product engineering is my call <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean that's 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 a bit how it is with us mm-hmm. so we are the team we have our product manager in day-to-day operations the man there the the act our actual manager isn't there we have mm-hmm. our one-on-ones and he sometimes joins I don't know some of the meetings just to see how we're doing and that's it as I said, if a machine is well tuned, you don't need to check in that often. You don't need to course correct all the time, right? Yeah. But I mean, there's there's definitely still some uh, some work to be done. But I, I think we are at a very good uh, in a very good place. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But as I said, it's not like we're out of work because remember the last episode. Well. It so happens that because we had to reduce uh, our our workforce, some of the work that was done in the past by some other team members is now falling on my shoulders. And those of uh, a couple of, I hope I can uh, say confidently now, a couple of friends uh, at work in my same role. And um, we have been tasked with being the release testing coordinators mm-hmm. because, as you can imagine, this is a medical device, the one that we uh, that we develop. So it has to be tested. Mm-hmm. It's not only because we want to test because it's good practice, but we actually have to do it. Uh, if we want to keep the license, if we want to keep all the certifications that we want, that's an interesting aspect that I never thought about and actually makes uh, a lot of sense. There's plenty of certifications out there. ISO this, ISO that, uh, TOOF, and so on. What that means is that I learned every year you have to go through an audit where, I mean, there is various degrees of compliance that you can have, but uh, at the bare minimum, you have to show that you have actually tested every single thing that went into your product Mm -hmm. in that year. So not only you have to 
demonstrated you have tested everything. As you can imagine, you also have to keep track of everything that went into your product. Yeah, that was the first thought. How how do you even... Welcome to hell. Yeah. Um, how do you... Is it just, hey, in Jira, it went through, this, through the testing workflow state or something? I don't know. Yeah. So there are... I'm not an expert uh, because I'm not the one doing this. We have actually compliance engineers that take care of this, compliance uh, uh, people that know how to do this job. What we, from a product engineering perspective, what we have to ensure is this, is that uh, let's go backward. How do you demonstrate that something went into your code, into your code base, and it was tested? It's actually not that different from what you just described. You have to show that that specific ticket that is connected to the pull request, that's why it's so important on pull requests to have the code of the Jira ticket into the um, commit, mm -hmm. ideally, mm -hmm. but also into the PR, because then you can backtrack, okay, this was what we wanted to implement. This is where it was on Jira. This is even the person that tested it. Who was the person assigned to QA this ticket? Did they do it? When they did it? Was it before or after this date? Blah, blah, blah. And that ticket then belongs to a story, we assume. A story has been marked as being agreed with the certification company, I guess, institution, institution, that that particular JIRA issue is the one thing to keep to use to describe the requirements and that user story belongs to an epic that epic contains all these requirements also so this is the bigger picture and that epic actually is into your documentation and your documentation in our case that's confluence so going backward, what happens is that, sorry, going forward, what happens is that someone creates a, you can call it product requirement document, you can call it whatever you want, but creates an artifact somewhere that it's accessible and it's marked with a date and an author about the requirements. You then have to describe how those requirements were implemented and then you go into the code and look if it was implemented that way. And then you have some artifacts of some sort that says this piece of code with this description, its function was tested by this person before it was released. And that's how we know that it worked. Yeah, sort of broad strokes is the same thing that we do, but we can be a bit looser, I guess. <laughs> yes, I assume you can. It's um, it's actually a possibility not to pass a certification, and then uh, you you have to do it all over again. But it's not like you get a certification and that certification stays with you forever. It's something that requires a lot of discipline. Uh, actually, can sometimes even hold you back. The PM I was uh, talking about before, he told me that in his previous company, he was also it was. It was yet another company that does uh, digital healthcare. They were having, you know, such a precise, it's called quality management system, that mm -hmm. it was actually very slow to bring anything to life. 
Yeah, I mean, this is sort of what we are dealing with a bit. We are try- trying to move a bit in the other direction. So historically, this, this project started out as a monolith with very little tests. So there were actually quite a few cases where implementing a feature broke something completely independent, something in a completely different part of the application. So we ended up, I don't know, having, I don't know, two-week sprints. And then the end of the sprint, there was some deployment to staging. And then there was some, by now, a bit automated testing and some manual testing going on. And then that took about, I don't know, right now a sprint and then maybe one to two weeks to get that done. So you have like a full week lead time at the worst for something to get implemented and out to production. I guess for you, that's fast. For us, yes, <laughs> that is. I was about to say that's not that bad. For us, that is a problem and slow, especially now that we are sort of uh, cutting up that application and mm. the smaller parts that we have outside. They are already basically con- doing continuous deployment. Where hey, we finished something and we deploy it today. So there we we are trying to to sort of cut this down a bit and say hey. Maybe we don't do this manual testing phase and we're just looking at whatever documentation of bugs and stuff there is. There were actually very few things that were found at this stage Mm. in the testing. So we're seeing if we can at least go that step and say, hey, at the end of the sprint, we just uh, deploy without doing that thing. And then sort of the issue, I think, isn't necessarily uh, technical. It's more about daring to do it and then see if it actually is a problem or not. So that has been, it was discussed for a long, long time, months, if not years already. (laughs) But now we are finally actually just doing it and say, hey, we need to get moving. Fine. And really looking forward to to that. For me, this is something new in my previous companies. Well, that's not exactly true. The first company I worked for here in Germany, we had to do that. Uh, we uh, we're experiencing your same the, the same thing that that is happening to you. Like we had two weeks release cycles, but the manual testing at some point was like, had to be too extensive, and we had to move into a three weeks release cycle because otherwise it was impossible to to test everything. <laughs> okay. Not that we were testing everything, but you know, like the most important things make sure that they weren't uh, broken for it was twofold because it was a fintech so it was a bank Mm -hmm. so we had to test because we had to be compliant by certain standards but we were also not only we were a bank but the company that the bank decided to create out of their it department software development department uh, was also selling a white label version of our system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in our contracts with our customers, there was also clause that we had to test everything before releasing and we couldn't afford not to do it. So, you know, but that was something that I never had to do in my previous company, uh, the one where I worked before this one, not to this extent. So yes, we were doing feature testing, especially the the single teams were doing that. Release testing for a certain set of uh, features every single release i don't think we ever did it in the beginning that i mean that's still happening here but i think most of it is actually automated yeah by now but i'm 
I'm not sure if those automated tests all are really reliable. And I think that's sort of the other problem. This is sort of outside of the teams. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, you throw it over the wall and then someone else does it. And I think that's mm. also something we need to work on. Yeah. For, for our part, for in, in my team, what the project we are building, this is essentially now our responsibility as well. And I think that's going much better because essentially you're writing code. And I think developers are the best to write code in the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's also nice to, and I think it's also good, and I don't know, not nice, but also helpful to experience the pain of those tests and how they are unreliable Absolutely. and how you can make them re more reliable and maybe also, I don't know, work not only in making the tests more reliable, but also making your app easier to test. Mm -hmm. Because that's what I feel part of the problem is that Oh yeah. Those quality people, they don't have the access to the app. They can't say, hey, I'm going to implement this in this small feature here to make my life easier. They have to work with what's there, right? And yeah. then it's just more ex more difficult than it actually needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. So two things there. I, I was thinking about what I said before, that we never did release testing in, in Freeletics. True, to some extent. I mean, the last few years, yes, we did because we had QAs. So I guess they were doing that and we were automating many of those things. That's actually one of the interesting things to see my uh, new CTO to focus on. That's the point, like we want to move uh, all this uh, testing to the left, but for doing that means we have to automate a lot of that, right? But Freeletics had a very interesting advantage compared to other products and similar products, I assume they they all have, that because almost everyone in the company was actually using the product. Mm -hmm. We had an extensive, extensive beta tester group because the whole company <laughs> was in beta testing, basically. Yeah. And people were, someone would be training every day. Not, not everyone at the same time, but at least like five to 10 people would test every day the app and they would go through the moves. So if you log out and you have to log in, if, I mean, probably the, the only thing that we didn't do that often was actually testing payments, but that was basically <laughs> it, right? Um, yeah. Otherwise, all the other functions in the, all the other features in the app were basically daily tested by someone. Plus we had... Uh, what we called uh, and we still call ambassadors. These are uh, pro, let's say, users of uh, of Freeletics. These are people that are actually collaborating with the company to some extent, and they have been using the app for a very long time. So they have access to uh, beta uh, features uh, before others. So actually, it was kind of a release testing done by uh, the mob. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah that's not um, a bad place to be yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other thing that uh, you made me think of is that when I started testing the the app here at Kaya one of the things that I noticed was that we had and we still have fewer goodies in terms of testing features than uh, what I was used at at Freeletics uh, for Freeletics we had a debug testing panel where you could turn on and off a bunch of feature flags where you could pick the environment the app was talking to. So 
you could you could activate specific uh, parts of the app. Like, okay, I want to see this particular screen that is coming up only in this uh, in this moment. Mm-hmm. And now we are starting to have those things also in in the app by Kaya, but it was something that sometimes one single engineers think about because uh, they are going through the moves of testing or they are talking with the QA engineer and they were like, oh, you know, like this was actually, how can I do this? I need to uh, set the account in this particular state, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay, let me do it. I'll just create a toggle and you can see that screen. But there has to be someone that thinks about how difficult testing that specific feature is and then implement it. Yeah, exactly. You have to actually experience this. You and have then to you feel can. the pain. Oh, yeah. But anyways, so this release testing at the moment uh, still means that we are doing a lot of manual testing because we are uh, we still have to discuss properly how to what kind of strategy do we want to have in the long run and how to get there as a stopgap approach. We have decided to um, have multiple coordinators of these testing sessions because uh, when we, uh, when we started looking at what testing coordinator was supposed to do, it was like, okay, this is a full-time job. (laughs) I'm pretty confident (laughs) we cannot do this. Um, So we decided to split and uh, we're following the same pattern, but the scope we're covering is slightly smaller. So I cover EU, we call them the EU version of our apps because we release less frequently than the versions we are selling in the US. Whilst in the US, two other engineering managers taking care, one of them takes care of uh, release testing on iOS and the other one on Android. And our current approach is that of, so there is this one interesting product that I wasn't unaware of, that I wasn't aware of uh, until long ago. It's called X-Ray and it's part of the Atlassian suite for software development. It's basically a glorified Jira workflow where the tickets are actually test cases. Those test cases, you can define steps what needs to be tested. So you literally describe the action and what to expect out of that action. You can attach screenshots to it. You can identify defects in a specific moment of uh, the test case being executed. And you can create test plans because you have a test repository where you put all your tests it's basically a gigantic directory that you divide in subdirectories and whatnot. So that's your testing repository. Out of that repository, you can select some of those tests to become part of a test plan. And that's another Jira ticket with specific characteristics. <laughs> and that test plan then can be executed. So you can reuse a test plan for multiple releases, for example. The test execution can be different for uh, different releases and can yield different results. And there you can then connect directly to a specific ticket. Okay, this bug was found by while testing the specific test case, or uh, you can create features out of those uh, tests. And it's like, okay, this is related to that. And Jira takes care of of course, keeping track of uh, all the relations between these these items. 
it can produce, it will produce, if you want, also documentation that you can then attach to your audit, by the way. So pretty cool. But, but it yes. would be nice if you wouldn't need it, right? <laughs> no, it would be so nice not to have a need for this. On the other hand, again, this was a learning opportunity because I learned what it actually means to write a good test. It's not that easy. You have a lot of context. So I'm the one that is currently writing a lot of tests because trying to cover as much as possible the whole application with test cases. Mm -hmm. Some of them I reused what we had in the past. Uh, others I'm writing anew because we actually changed the functionality there. So it's not valid anymore. I do know the the app by now. I know the I know the flows. Some someone, one of my partners, uh, went on holiday last week, and, and last week was uh, released. So uh, another engineering manager that is kind of new to the to the company, he did, he accepted to be the substitute. Even there, we realized we had so much context about the app that this person was like, okay, but what should I do now? It says that I need to uh, change my last name. How do I do that? Like, you know, so writing very good tests takes uh, time and it takes Like you really have to take a step back. And I realized that the tests that I was writing weren't, I mean, they're good, but they're not that good from that perspective. So going back to what you said, and this is going to be my uh, parting uh, thought, engineers, software engineers, I think there is a lot of value in us also testing because we are responsible for, for the code we write. And mm -hmm. for actually implementing what we were asked. And if you don't test, you will never know that you have actually created what you want. But you also need someone with that is not so involved to describe what what is going on. That's always the danger. And you basically yeah. just do it the way it was intended. And then Absolutely. the way someone actually does it is different. And then it doesn't work. Yes. Yeah, that's always the the line you have to uh, go there essentially yeah. but yeah i th i think the the way i see it now the yes it would be nice if someone else could figure out how to test the stuff but then it would be good to actually involve the engineers again and, and oh, automate yeah. as much of that stuff as possible in the end that's that what needs to happen because humans are just too slow uh, they are yep. too slow and There's no point in repeating something that can be automatically. It can even yeah, be that's... something I learned. There's something called screenshot testing, for example. Mm -hmm. That's like, true, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I didn't learn it yesterday, but, you know, like, uh, as a backend engineer, I had no idea. And then one of my mobile engineers a few years ago were like, oh, you know, like, we could actually introduce screenshot testing. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, you can take screenshots and you can verify that they match the screen, the initial screenshot you wanted to, to have. It's like, oh, magic. You know, like you don't need a person to check that two images are the same. That's what machines are for. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the infamous curve of uh, when it's worth to automate things. Uh, it's worth to automate once you hit a certain a certain amount of repetitions before it doesn't make sense before it's 
okay to do it manually. But that threshold can be reached, got past, get past very fast. It's very easy to to yeah, go. Yeah, that's true. And I guess with those kinds of tests on this high level, the, the other danger is, yes, you can automate the stuff, but that only helps you if the tests are reliable and just don't fail randomly, which yes. happens too often as well. And then you are back at a lot of work figuring out if a test failed for no reason or for an actual reason. Do tests fail for no reason? I mean, in, in the sense of, I don't know, if I look at a web app, hey, I test that something is on the page, but something in the background needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And then your test setup didn't take that into account. And then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Ah, yeah, yeah. Right? In that sense, that yes. the setup is a bit brittle and you need to either for com for you test as often or for us just not test everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, next week we're going to talk about what I learned about testing the web. Sounds mm -hmm. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's what I've been spending some time on as well in the last weeks, trying to clean up a bit of our actual end-to-end -end tests where we drive a browser and figure oh, stuff ooh. out. And then you end up with stuff, hey, the page is there, but the part that I'm looking at, that's still loading because it's a separate request. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and fun stuff like that. And then sometimes it works and sometimes it fails. And then you don't even run it locally on your machine, but you run it in some kind of cloud environment. And then what you have, if you're lucky, is some kind of video and low res video of seeing what's going on. Oh, and then boy. you have to debug like that. That sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is just I didn't spend enough time to figure out all the tools yeah. and just used what was there. And then sometimes you dig a hole and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes that happens. All right. All right. But I guess we are done for today. Where can people find you, Monica? On the beach, I guess, these days. Yes, you can definitely find me on the beach. That's That's a given. Um, you can find me on Twitter. These days I'm tweeting a little bit more because I'm on the beach. Guess what? Um, <laughs> at uh, KF Modeling with an I. And uh, you can find me at my website, monicag.me. So if you want to write me, that's definitely an option. And there you can find other references to where to find me on GitHub, GitLab, you name it. Where people can find you, Urban. You can also find me on Twitter as UJH and surprisingly on LinkedIn these days. <laughs> it always makes me cry <laughs> I'm of that age yes now I don't know mm -hmm. what happened um, and if you want to reach us maybe ask us some questions if you have some feedback uh, you can email us at hosts at expandingbeyond.it yes alright everyone thank you for listening it's always amazing that people actually do that yes after almost 50 episodes. <laughs> I was actually talking with a friend of mine at dinner and he was like, yeah, in your last episode, I was like, oh, someone is listening. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Enjoy, All people. Right, See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.